Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 70 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. <laughs> I am here with Chef Karin Tomlinson, of owner of Muriel, current home of Karin's Quarantine Kitchen, doing mm-hmm. weekly takeout, opening early 2021. Am I correct in saying hopefully? Let's hope, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted to have you in. I uh, just had you by the roaster last week to taste some coffees. But I saw your story pop up on the news about Karin's Quarantine Kitchen. And it was something that you've done since really the beginning of quarantine. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to start here. I want to get back to here because I think this is kind of the culmination of everything you've done results in, ironically, a weekly takeout kitchen, as I'm sure you've planned your Who whole knew? career. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you've adjusted re- in a really cool way this year that's allowed you to get a, a what I think is a lot of publicity. And it's really how I found out about you and then was reading about your story. And I go, God, I got to get her on the podcast here. So really excited to have you in today. Thank you. Thanks so much. So you have Muriel based out of St. Paul, but I want to go all the way back to kind of how you got started in food. Is this something that for you starts at a very young age or when do you realize that you have this spark for food that leads you down your culinary career? You know, it actually wasn't until a bit later. I was always, I was that kid who was interested in everything. I liked art. I was outside all the time. I was pretty active. I liked music. I was kind of, uh, you know, I, a Jill of all trades. And so I never really knew what I wanted to do with my life. I liked the idea of, I mean, I liked business. I always loved brainstorming about new ideas and how to make them happen. But I never really thought about that in the context of food. But I did grow up in a really hospitable family. So I saw from a pretty young age the power of a good meal and a set table and bringing people together. I saw that people connect when they have a meal in front of them and you kind of get more comfortable as you eat. And, you know, it's the food isn't always the focal point, but it's always kind of the vehicle for a good conversation. And so I saw that both in my home with my parents and then also my grandparents and their small, like small town community. And um, I just saw that that was really important. So as I got older and had no idea what I was doing with my life, I um, eventually found myself just cooking more. I, had, I lived next to a neighbor who was an elderly man, and he taught me how to put in a garden, and I started to cook from that, and I started to incorporate that more into my life and my work at the time, and and uh, then that's kind of when I thought, huh, I think I need a change of pace. I need to do something more creative and entrepreneurial with my life started a brainstorm and I thought, you know, maybe I should actually take food seriously. And at what age is this happening? This is like 20, 21, oh, okay. something like that. Yeah. So at, at this point you said you've got a job. 22. You've got a job. Uh, what was, what were you doing uh, for work at the time? Cause I think sometimes people look at someone like you that's found some awesome success, getting all this publicity. Mm-hmm. Obviously we'll get to a lot of what I want to ask you about in your culinary career. But I think a lot of people assume, you go, oh, no, you've had this plan since you were a kid and you went to school for it and everything has been working against I mean, my plan in high school was to either join the CIA or to make films or to be uh, international diplomacy. So none of those plans have worked out. (laughs) And in this Um, case, the CIA, the government CIA, not the Culinary Institute. I guess you never know. Being a chef might be a cover, but I can't (laughs) tell you right now. Um, no, I uh, I was doing some work with a, a nonprofit. I was a history major in college, minored in business and in art, and um, I was working for a, I worked for a foundation for a bit. I worked for a Christian college ministry, and I was doing a lot of um, 
you know, a lot of things that were worthwhile, but I just didn't have that kind of creative outlet. And I love the kind of, I love, um, I, I didn't really uh, give myself enough. Um, I didn't really think that working with your hands and doing something that was more like a trade could be also very professional. I know that sounds very snobbish to say, but that's true. I, I just had a misconception about what, what, you know, a career like that might be. I think that's a pretty common narrative, especially in the U.S. That it's like, if you're successful, you go to college and you get a real job. And what's a real job? Oh, it's where you don't have to work with your hands. Yeah. You're at a desk from nine to five. You work your way up the ladder. and You it's use a, your brain and it's the fast <laughs> track to making a lot of money and making yeah. an impact in the world and all of that. But So I, I think that's a, yeah. a fairly common narrative. Yeah especially going along that path. Yeah. And so you find yourself after school with these jobs and you start to get into food. You're gardening. It's becoming a bigger part mm -hmm. of your life. How long is that happening before you're like, maybe I should like basically flip my entire life upside down and start to pursue this seriously? Yeah, boy, I'm the worst at remembering amounts of time. I think it was a couple of years, maybe something like that. And I, I brainstormed. I, I had a long list. It kind of, I, I was on a flight back from California at the time. I'd gone out with a friend and we talked about actually just moving out there. And um, I brainstormed on the way back about all the different ways that I could kind of change things up in my life. And one that kind of kept materializing was um, doing something with food and cooking. And, but I realized I never even worked in a restaurant. You know, I don't have the story of like, oh, I was washing dishes since I was 14 and made my way up to head chef. Like, it, that's not my story. I mean, the closest I had was like working in a Target deli in high school. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm really great at slicing meat. But besides that, it didn't really prepare me for being a chef. Um, but anyway, I, uh, um, yeah, I just, I kind of realized that I needed some experience. So I looked at different programs, I had already done college, so I didn't need the, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of cooking programs here have like, they're kind of replacements for college as well, mm -hmm. but I'd already done that. So I just, just needed to learn how to cook and have some like, you know, some guidance there. And so I, um, I wanted to learn a history, all the proper techniques and terminology, et, et cetera. And so anyway, I found a program in France. It was Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. And they have a very like intensive program. You can kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Um, you can do the whole nine yards, do study cuisine and pastries. And I just chose to study cuisine. And I did as much as I could afford. I uh, did the fast track. It was there like morning till night, six days a week in school and living in Paris. And um, it was great. Did you speak French? Yeah, actually. Okay. Yeah. I mean, don't ask me to speak French now. Yeah. It's a little bit rusty. That's the I, one language I cannot comprehend. Really? I'm a, like, I'm okay at Spanish, but I visited a friend in, in France once. Uh -huh. And like, you're looking at the word and you hear someone say it and you go, that's not what you just read. You're like, you said only one thing, but on paper, that's like four words. <laughs> is that part of what influenced you to potentially study in France yeah. is because you spoke French? Yeah. Okay. I've always loved, I mean, I love, I'm kind of surprised. My parents are surprised that I still live in the U.S. I always have loved different cultures and and there's always been something about uh, French culture that has appealed to me and I like the language. It just sounds great. It it's sounds beautiful. fantastic. But um, I uh, And it's used a lot in the arts and that's something that that world has always kind of appealed to me. Um, so that did affect my decision and I had been to France before and I really liked it and I thought, oh, these are my people. I can study <laughs> about food there. <laughs> and plus that's also kind of where cuisine as we know yeah. it, you know, from, uh, it kind of originated. So 
Um, anyhow, it was, it was really sweet. I loved, I loved doing that. And I, you know, I was able to use some French there. My chefs there thought I was probably nuts. They'd used to ask me if I wanted to, what I wanted to do after cooking school in French. And I would, I would tell them, well, I don't want to be a chef. That life is too crazy. And I was like, I would be either a TV personality or maybe uh, I would teach cooking. And they're like, okay, okay, kiddo. But, um, (laughs) Anyway, probably was, not a very common answer no, at a culinary school. Not of what at do you all. want to do? Not a chef not for sure. All. But that's just part of it. You know, we don't always know where we're going to end up in in our story. And uh, I had obviously no idea then. How long was that program while you were at Le Cordon Bleu in France? I was there for maybe a few months. I didn't even. I didn't. I just did it as much as I could afford. I was paying double rent for a little apartment in Paris and still somewhere in Minnesota. And um, I did, I cruised through as much of the cuisine program as I could and then came home and looked for work. As you're looking for work when you get back, what type of places are you kind of looking for? I had no idea where to even start. Mm -hmm. So honestly, I I don't even remember this part that much, but I know that I put together a resume and marched all over town with my little resume, brought it to different restaurants, and I ended up working... um, a guy that I, I met through a mutual connection. He was a research and development chef. He kind of took me under his wing and taught me about that side of you know production and manufacturing and the importance of consistency. I did that. I started my own LLC and did some catering and demos and and that that sort of thing. And then um, through a friend, I um, I kind of heard about this one restaurant in St. Paul called Meritage, and it was mm-hmm. French. And I was like, oh, perfect! I just got back from France, and um, Anyway, I ended up getting a job there, which is another kind of long story, but I and I did about everything in that you can do in a restaurant while I was there. I worked there for a few years and over that time I started to realize like, oh, there's something about the pattern, like the the living, breathing uh, you know, the way that a, a restaurant operates and the way that everyone works together as a team and that there it all culminates in this like uh, experience in the evening or whatever service you're doing. And there's a lot of stress and adrenaline involved, but it's so gratifying when you kind of see that you've made a difference in someone's life, at least for that night, you know, their dining yeah. experience. And, and you've really given them something special that they couldn't have at home. And so I started to kind of really like that more and more. It seems to me that the French style of cuisine and cooking in kitchen culture is like a pressure cooker. This is the mm-hmm. second time Meritage has actually come up on the podcast. Really? Uh, Justin Sutherland also. Was I know of, him from there. Yeah, he was yeah. out of Meritage for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's just this recurring theme that yeah. like the French style of kitchen life is like a pressure cooker that it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's high pressure. Everything needs to be perfect. It is. But it, you can already tell that it the result is that when you learn from that it, yeah. it seems to elevate everything around it and mm-hmm. something about French cuisine is it's not just about the food it's about the presentation it's about the atmosphere it's mm-hmm. about the knowledge that when you go to somewhere like Meritage it's not just you're going to get great, great food but everything about it was it what you expected when you get into Meritage so you start working basically every job there and mm-hmm. I'm sure like a lot of people you probably have the idea of and you have a direct idea because you came from France but you have an idea of like what it's like to be in the back of a live kitchen mm-hmm. how was it uh, versus your expectations when you got there you know that's a that's a good question I think that um it was a little bit you know when you're in school it's very structured um it's it's there's kind of not that um, X factor of 
stuff that is unexpected, you know, and I think that in a restaurant, you're always dealing with unexpected circumstances, something, some delivery that doesn't show up or some guest that has this thing or this event that's happening or this, you know, and, and I think that all of those things kind of add like a ton to the intensity. Um, and so that was different. Um, and I actually didn't just do, I didn't, start doing back of house stuff when I was there. I started hosting and then I started running the crepe stand and then I started some prep cook shifts and started doing some pastries. And so I, I ended up, you know, I really saw all of it. Yeah. And yeah. Th- these are the details I always like to highlight. Cause I, I feel like in, in a story in your own mind, your story is like, Oh, it's, it's here. I'm here now. And so yeah. you're, uh, when you're at one place, you're like, Oh, I was there for a few years, but that's important to note. Like a few years is not an insignificant amount of time, no. especially starting as a host. Right. And uh, like, that's something that a lot of people breeze. Oh, I was, did this for a few years and that. And you're like, but that was an intense amount of work over no. a period of three years. When yeah. you th- like college is four years in um, a lot of, in most programs. Yeah. And here you are three years in this intense kitchen starting as host. Right. How quickly did you kind of move up? How, how, how fast did you change from different positions? And were these things that, this is another thing I love to highlight is like when you went in, were you intentional about that you wanted to work to a certain position or did you just say, I'll take any opportunity that comes up? Well, I was, I, I had set out to work in the kitchen, um, but because of some misunderstandings, et cetera, I'm not sure exactly. I ended up, um, that position went away right before I was about to start. And then um, the chef client was like, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> and I was like, well, but I'm, I'm planning on this. And, and do you have anything available? And he's like, well, I, I mean, we need a host. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the best job hosting that I can. And I'm going to get around. It's like a foot in the door. And yeah. so I honestly don't remember the timeline, but, um, you know, I really did try to do the best that I could at any of the jobs that I did there. Except I think it was a server for like two weeks. And I realized quickly that that was not what I wanted to do with my life. But, um, but everything else, I, you know, I don't, I don't remember the timeline, but it was, um, you know, stuff always happens in a restaurant. Someone doesn't show up, a position opens, someone's gone, someone's sick. And so all of those things can also create opportunities for mm-hmm. a little bit of mobility. And I seized every opportunity that I could. Where did you end up at Meritage? What, what was kind of, because you, you said hope, uh, host, you mm-hmm. said something about a crepe stand? Yeah, I ran the crepe stand. Is there was really? a crepe stand on the sidewalk. Okay. And <laughs> it started, oh, let me tell you, it started with like maybe two options, like uh plain sugar crepe or um whatever i don't know it was nutella and ham and cheese and then i like sweet some savory yeah exactly and then i like made the most out of that crepe menu every week and took whatever like if they gave me an inch i was like i'm gonna take that and make that two inches and and so anyway um that was really fun i actually got to have some like regulars at the stand and it it did well and it was kind of fun in a very small like micro way to Mm start writing a little menu and, you know, like kind of run with that. And it kind of gave me a taste more of it. I think it was doing that, that helped me realize and, and doing prep shifts in the kitchen that kind of helped me realize I want more of this. Like Mm -hmm. I really, I can do the hosting. I can do the front of house stuff. I even became the catering and events manager for a while and checked a bunch of oysters on homes on Summit Avenue and, you know, all of that, which was fascinating. But, um, (laughs) I uh, I don't remember how I think I ended up doing that and then and doing some uh, shifts in the kitchen as well. It was kind of a, a combination, um, but it was at that point then that an old friend reached out to me about um, a position at at Burrow in the North Loop, and she's like, 
we had grown up in the same church together and she was like, Oh, I haven't talked to you in years, but my uh, boyfriend at the time, like my boyfriend needs a pastry chef. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do pastries, but let's reconnect. And I ended up realizing that that might be a good opportunity. So it was at that point then, then I shifted gears. So having never, never done pastries, you're, you now go over to Burrow to start doing pastries. I like challenge. Yeah. How does that go? Because pastries are something that, in my experience, baking pastries horribly is that it requires like insanely, like the calculations have to be perfect. Everything has to be very dialed mm-hmm. in and the, like technique is, it seems to be a part of it, mm-hmm. obviously, but it really is about like just repetition and repetition and like that's how you get really good at it. And that's mm-hmm. what because of my attention span, that's why I'm not good at pastries. Is I was like, this is good enough for me to bake. How was it going from never having done pastries to now, is it you were in charge of the pastry program yeah. at Burrow? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, it, you know, it was good. I, I actually learned um, some from uh, the sous chef at, at Meritage, mm. um, John Bayreuther. He was great, uh, a mentor. And um, so I, I had an opportunity to learn some about French pastries through that. And I'd learned some basics in cooking school, but I intentionally hadn't studied pastries because I'm like, I have a more like loosey artistic mind anyway. And I kind of like the intuitive nature of savory cooking. Um, and I'm, I also thought, you know, that's what pastries, that's what all like all women do in kitchens. I kind of want to do something different. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I'm a little bit stubborn. So <laughs> I... Um, I had vowed not to ever do that, but then when I realized that it was an opportunity to learn something different, and I wanted to, in it, I realized I think from working in in Meritage that, you know, the pastry program that a restaurant has and the savory program, like it really needs to mesh together well. And a good chef should know about both, and um, or a good cook, you know. And so I think, and then I also saw that it was an opportunity to kind of oversee like another micro unit of a restaurant, kind of like running the crepe stand, but mm-hmm. a little bit more, a lot bit more actually. And um, I was excited about the opportunity to kind of make something as good as I could and to exercise a bit of leadership too. I ended up having, you know, a couple assistants in the pastry program there and, and developed a bread program and did all that stuff. But yeah, there was definitely a learning curve. And I felt like I was for the first, I don't know how, maybe like six months, I felt like I was going to get fired every day because I was like <laughs> learning, but I had to, I had to, um, and you know, there are a lot of big personalities in kitchens too, that I had to learn to navigate. But, um, but, uh, yeah, it was good. I, I just did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading and a lot of trial and error and um, learned to ask a lot of questions from people who knew more than I did. Yeah, that's something that I have said multiple times is that I go into most things being like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So please over explain mm-hmm. everything to me. And just putting that out there up front and just yeah. saying like, I want to learn from you kind of takes down the wall of someone being self-conscious about like, I don't want to come. Although in kitchens, that is usually not an issue, but yeah. <laughs> in some cases it might be. Mm-hmm. So after that six months, you get more comfortable, you're in the leadership position. How long do you end up being at Burrow in charge of the pastry program? Mm, I think it was maybe like three years. I don't, yeah, there again. I think it was about three years. It was (laughs) a while. It was a, it was a good season anyway. What 
led you to leave Burrow after three ish years? Um, sounds yeah. sounds like after six six months, that two and a half years of being really comfortable <laughs> and building a program. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of things were you building into that program over those three years? Like, what would you say you were most proud of about the pastry program yeah. that you were running at Burrow? Well, I, when I got there, I set out to. Um, you know, the chefs were very intentional about the menu as kind of an early like chef driven restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, in the Twin Cities. And and um, I just realized, you know, I wanted to put as much time into the and intentionality into the dessert program as they were the the food. And I wanted, you know, if they were thinking a certain way about flavor profiles and ingredients and sourcing, I wanted to think that way about desserts. And um, so I really I was I became really proud of the the plated dessert program um, and, uh, you know, would do a lot of things with, um, boy, it's been a while since I've thought about this. I'm (laughs) such a forward mover. It's good to like think back. But, um, you know, I would often use, I would try to highlight specific ingredients or do something that was a little bit surprising in a dessert, not for the shock value, Mm -hmm. but just to kind of engage people's minds a little bit. And at the end of the day, it just had to taste good though, too. Mm -hmm. And I learned in doing that that, like, you know, you don't want to use technique isn't there to impress people. It's there as a vehicle, uh, as a part of the whole, like to make something taste good, maybe to look beautiful, but it shouldn't be the main point. It shouldn't be technique and often be a tool for ego in the kitchen or, you know, like, hey, look what I can do. Smoke and mirrors. Ooh, you know, but I learned that that often can get in the way of good food. And so... That was something that I, you know, that's not like a part of the program that I was proud of, but I think that was a big takeaway for me during that time. Um, I started a bread program there. I just wanted to make it as efficient as possible. And um, so that was fun. It was it was cool to, to get to do all of that. Um, but then I ended up just, you know, I felt like I had built that up as much as I could. And I was kind of getting to a place where I was just sort of getting that, you know, I just needed to be challenged a little bit more. And and I knew at that point that I could either kind of like live and die in the pastry world and, you know, maybe, you know, do some consulting or become more of a corporate pastry chef or something like that or help other people build pastry programs. But that didn't quite sit right with me. So I went to, um, I took a trip to Norway and Sweden. I had a couple of friends over there at the time. And that had also been... Um, I had been there when I was a kid a couple times um, traveling with my family. Uh, my dad, dad was there for work, and, and it was sort of the first place that really opened up the world to me. And so I thought, you know, what what better time now when I'm kind of at a fork in the road in life to maybe just stick my head above the clouds, go to a place that's kind of, you know, life-giving and interesting to me, and maybe I'll have some clarity. So I went, and when I went there, I ended up going to um, – I ended up getting a reservation at this remote restaurant in northern Sweden called Fabiken, uh, Magnus Nilsson's restaurant up there. And um, when I was there, um, everyone at my table went out for a smoke break, and I stayed by myself. And Magnus came over and chatted with me. No way. <laughs> and um, so it, there, it pays not to smoke, apparently, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for multiple reasons. But um, so he came in and uh, chatted with me, and, and he had actually just been in Minnesota. And, of course. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the land of the, uh, well, pretend, well, people like with Swedish ancestry who are all like, it's funny, uh, Swedish people are like, man, all these Minnesotans say that they're Swedish, but they're like so not Swedish. But <laughs> I'm one of them. Um, but 
anyway, he came and chatted and he said, well, you know, he, I mean, I told him about kind of being at a fork in the road and how, it, you know, it was just exciting to be at his restaurant and I really enjoyed, you know, it was, it was really helpful for me. And he's like, you know, you could come and work here for a season for free, but you can come and work <laughs> it's here. It's like something out of like, and a, like, like a, uh, showtime, like a, you know, like coming of age tale, lot, like a, like a made for TV movie. It's like, it's almost so surreal that it's like, that's crazy that yeah. you, you just happen to be alone. He happens to come up and immediately you're talking about a fork in the life. I'm like, I, know. Is, I feel like I'm listening to like a scene out of a movie. This is awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, really it kind of felt, it felt like that, but um, so I went home, thought about it, and um, sent in a little like resume, and and sure enough, they said, well, why don't you come over in a couple months? And so I got to spend that winter, um, and I and I left it at Burrow, thinking that maybe I would come back or maybe not. But um, and they were really great about they just kind of understood where I was at, mm-hmm. and and they were really great to work with on on that. Um, so I went and spent a winter in way northern Sweden. Like we're talking. Not quite Arctic Circle, but getting there. Like it was dark for most of the day for a good part of the time that I was there. But it was so cool. I got to live on the side of a mountain. It was super intense, like so intense. It's easy. It sounds very romantic. Um, and there are parts of it that were, but it just was like super. It was hard work, a really intense community. But I got to know a lot of amazing people there. And I really got that kind of challenge. I felt like I had risen to leadership pretty fast in in that in this industry and I kind of was looking to be like challenged in some of the more basic ways and I really was I mean I'm here I show up like bottom of the totem pole in this mm-hmm. kitchen and um, in a different culture having to learn like how to navigate that all of those things and um, but it was really great I'm like I wouldn't change it for anything. It sounds like a very humbling experience yes. and I think uh, the phrase humbled is the most improperly used phrase of all it's always people at awards that i'm humbled I'm so humbled to all of a sudden be like honored you're like that's not <laughs> yeah. that's literally the opposite yeah, definition exactly. of that word and i love yeah. i love finding stuff that where you actually get humbled because it gives you a lot of really good yeah. perspective and i think a lot of people once they get comfortable most people in your position that they go i'm in a leadership position why would i go back mm. to square one in a totally unfamiliar country when i've got this good thing going over here when you say it's intense i, I kind of mm. want to dig into that a little bit of when you say this program is intense, what parts about it made it intense? Yeah, well, um, let's just start with the first day that I got there. I um, I was shown around the kitchen and they're like, oh, and we have a project for you. Um, it was the day off. Like no one else was in the kitchen except for like two of the sous chefs. And um, it like dropped three boxes on a table for me. And they're like, okay, here's a bunch of dried tobacco. You have your knife chiffonade that so it's like got that in really tiny pieces and uh just you know get through as much as you can my hand was and i like obviously use a knife a lot but my hand was like literally bleeding by the end of the day it's like cutting rosemary or something really tough like that all day long and um so i was like okay if this is any sign of the next few months (laughs) look out but um i mean it, it, it was really i think it was intense in that you know it was a Michelin star restaurant, one of the, it's been on the world's 50 best lists mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of high expectations, people from all around the world went, were going to eat there and, and even try to come work there and a pretty small team of people. Like it wasn't a huge, like Noma, you know, it's a large team of people with tons of stages, but Fine Vacan was just like 
it was, it's not that way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the expectations that even, uh, you know, a stage like me, a free worker like me, um, had were, were good, but that's what I wanted. But, you know, I had to have my prep schedule. I I had my prep schedule written out by the minute. Mm -hmm. And then there were times like during dinner service where I had to, get this one thing from the other, like there were a few outer buildings like barns and I had to like run to the barn at one point during service every night and get this. And like, if it was muddy, I had to change my boots and I had to like do this and this and this. And like, you know, it was, um, so it was no joke. Like it was really, it was one of the most challenging kitchen experiences that I think a person could have. Um, but, um, I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, so Michelin star for someone who might not know is obviously like the most reputable award that a restaurant can really yeah. receive. It's up to three, if I'm correct. So it's up to three Michelin stars, which is like nearly impossible to get. Mm-hmm. And just to receive a Michelin star is an insane honor. What was it about that restaurant? Cause I'm curious about like the Michelin starred restaurants versus non, are there th- certain things you notice about a restaurant that receives a Michelin star versus other places you've worked? Are there notable differences or is it oh, yeah. more of like a sliding scale of just your, the, the, some are close, but not there. How, how, yeah. What are the major differences you see? Well, that's a good question. And I think, um, there's some differences that are, you know, it's kind of like, what's the cart and what's the horse? Like, mm-hmm. is it what becomes, once you get that kind of recognition, then you obviously have a standard to keep up. Um, but I think that's part of it. But then also just restaurants in different cultures are different. Like European restaurants, um, non-Midwestern restaurants have very different standards. And and I think even people in that industry, like cooks just view their their lives and their, their profession a little bit differently. You know, I think I'd, I noticed... Um, that a lot of this is changing here but at the time you know there's been sort of like this pirate ship mentality of kitchens in the in minnesota even um sort of like the you know we're all part of this grind it's hard work there's a lot of like some ego and testosterone involved probably and you know but it's people wearing bandanas and it's, like it's almost like a sense of pride that you your counterculture that it's like yeah. you, you almost try to go exactly you try to go as yeah. opposite as corporate as possible which includes yes. the potentially beneficial things of corporate that it's professional and people yes. act a certain way that I, the the few kitchens i've worked in it, there does seem to be this sense of pride of like i i want to swear even if i don't need to exactly. i want i want to be vulgar just because i can because yeah. this is like what we do yes. and that's for sure something I've and seen. The more tattoos, the better. Exactly. Just yeah, no, it's and nothing wrong with tattoos or no. any of those <laughs> things exactly. But it's just it is. You're right. It's a counterculture. It's kind of like this rock star mentality. Mm-hmm. This counterculture and and uh, but I think that there's a bit of a different flavor in other cities and in other parts of the world. And I think that there's just a different level of professionalism and organization. And that was one of my biggest takeaways from my experience there. Is just how organized everything was you know all of the notes that there were you know for going into every day of service and just kind of how fastidious everyone needed Mm -hmm. to be about setting up their station and everything from it wasn't just about like getting the final result but it's how you had to be professional about the way you did it and everything had to be like if there was like a fleck of anything on the floor right away like go get a go get them up go get a sweep you know like let's take care of it and be professional about the way we do absolutely everything and um 
you know, I think that that's a huge difference. And then just sort of the pressure too, mm-hmm. um, which isn't bad. We hear pressure in our culture as Americans. And we're like, oh no, that means people have expectations of us, but that's not always a bad thing. Yeah. And so I, it just, but it, and it was good for me actually to experience that because I realized how I've, you know, I'm kind of American I am and I get indignant if my rights are trampled on and things like that. Yeah. And, but how, how do you think they feel about the phrase uh, work-life balance in a oof. culture like that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because actually in Scandinavia, I think they have that a little bit more dialed in, mm-hmm. but then it enables them when they're on the, when they're on the job to be like, like 120%. Oh, that's interesting. You know, so a lot of kitchens, uh, a lot of like, Michelin star kitchens, you know, will they'll operate maybe four or five days a week and then have their days off and people will work really long days, but then those days off are days off. And, um, you versus know, in the U S everything kind of just flows into yeah. each other and like you're off for, especially working from home. Now, a lot of people that it all seems yeah. that there's like this generalized anxiety where it's never high pressure, but yeah. also your days off are also not off. And th- yes. that to me is way worse to deal with mentally versus being on right. or off and focused. Well, and then sometimes you just don't actually function as well when you're on either, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think that that was, um, and it's interesting. One thing that I loved about my experience there was that every single day, um, at, you know, you'd be racing against the clock and then at a certain time, everyone would have to stop and have lunch together. And I think that's something that a lot of other cultures do better is to stop and enjoy a meal or fika, uh, or, you know, we would have coffee at our morning meeting and then like go 120 miles per hour after that and then stop for lunch. Mm. Everyone had to stop for like, I can't remember if it was 30 or 45 minutes on Saturdays. It was like extra special and whoever would did the meal would also plan wine pairings. And I mean, it was like, it was, it was really interesting. And then we would go like full tilt through service and be done. But, um, I think just taking that, like making everyone stop and take a breather is actually a really good discipline. And that's something that I, I appreciated. Yeah. I'm really bad at that. (laughs) Oh man, me too. The amount of meals I have over a trash can or like on the go handful of spinach here and like a quick whatever i mean it's bad eat i'm just gonna check this one (laughs) thing really quick then all of a sudden you've eaten your entire meal and you're like what did i just eat yeah uh it's and it's interesting your point about pressure because to to me i think pressure is also a good thing and i think it provides almost like a catalyst to what you're doing that if something's low pressure it's going to take you a long time to figure out how to do it to figure out why you're doing it to figure out if you want to do it versus in this situation there you're going to know if you want to continue to pursue this after this program because right. it's an intense amount of pr- uh, pressure and sometimes like discomfort can provide clarity right whether it's uh, clarity that this is definitely not what I want to do I want to get as far away from it mm-hmm. or it seems like in your case that that was something you enjoyed so yeah. what were you what was your major takeaway after this program you're done with the season where where's your head at after this incredibly unique experience yeah I think what it really showed me was that um, well I mean some of what we just chatted about was a big takeaway I'm like I want to actually tried to, I, I looked for ways to stay in Europe at the time. I was like, I want, you know, I could benefit from more of this, but it was just so hard at the time, like for any American to get a work visa. At the, mm. And so back I came and I was like, okay, well, if I can't stay in Europe, I want to at least bring some of those values and the professionalism back with me. And I, it also kind of going through that intense season 
also really showed me that I still had energy left in me for more challenge. I And so kind of coming back to my initial question of, do I stay in the pastry world and try to capitalize on that? Or do I, you know, really kind of go for it mm-hmm. in a kitchen? And um, it showed me that probably the latter was the case. And it was great. You know, it was cool timing that I couldn't plan out. It was at that point, not too long after I came back that... When Tom- was it that you came back? What, what your ish? Oh, boy. Um, it's 2020 now. I'm None of very, us could ever. I'm very yeah. aware of that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you are definitely correct. Um, <laughs> and it was maybe a few years ago. Okay. Ish. Ish. Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, time is very relative for me. I was going to say this is a recurring theme here. Um, but I, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I came back, and shortly, shortly after. Um, Thomas Bamer um, reached out to me, who was the chef owner of Corner Table, and um, basically said, hey, do you know I'm reaching out to you? And I'm like, no, I have no idea. He's like, well, you know, what about taking the helm at Corner Table? And so it was really cool because here I had just come off this experience, and the one thing that I knew was that I still had, like, energy left in me to do something like that um, and to do to kind of take on another big challenge and then Lo and behold, that challenge was like right in front of me. So, what was that like going to so corner, but taking the helm? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the official title? I guess yeah, as being um, he asked me to be the chef de cuisine. Okay. So basically, the person who um, is the chef who mm-hmm. runs the kitchen um, and writes menus and and does all of that. And what's the feeling you have when he reaches out about this opportunity? I was like, whoa, well. Another, I mean, it, it like kind of reminded me, I was getting a bit of a deja vu when I was asked to be a pastry chef when I had never done that before. Right. And I'm like, well, I've never run a kitchen before. Or, you know, I've, I've had a very kind of uh, a, a weird way of, of getting, like my career hasn't really been by the book, you know. And um, anyhow, I, I just kind of thought, this is a lot to chew, but, you know, it's a big, it's a big step to take, but I think now's the time to do it. And so, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think I deliberated for too long, um, but I knew it would be a challenge, but it's, that kind of has been my theme anyway. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's someone just recently mentioned to me about, cause I think especially in food and beverage, there's not a lot of traditional careers. Like Mm-mm. it just doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've talked to anyone that where I go, Oh, here's the template for how I would recommend someone else right. do it. But one thing I've realized is that the people who tend to have success are just what my friend referred to as doers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a really simple way that's like this pretty consistent theme of people who seem to find success in food and beverage that just like at the core, they're just doers where it's right. it's not overly, oh, am I qualified enough to do this? Am yeah. I, should I, oh my gosh, all the things I don't know how to do yeah. about this position yet that, but just, it's very clear that you're a doer, that you just take these opportunities and they're going to be big challenges. And I think over over time you like people gain reputation as doers yeah. and so then it less it becomes less about like what's your resume should right. you know being chef de cuisine at corner table is, is the most perfect fit for a resume versus finding someone's like this is a doer and it's like that yeah. that just taking that opportunity was probably pretty nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. uh i mean at, was it corner table uh at this time like had their reputation been, yeah yeah because yeah. in my head i'm thinking corner table is like that must have been a yeah. little intimidating at least it because was. of the fantastic fantastic reputation it had yeah um 
what was it like onboarding at Corner Table, becoming chef de cuisine, cuisine there? It was um, the way I like vaguely remember my first day showing up in the kitchen there. Um, I trotted in with my little gold kitchen shoes and the, the guys, they were probably like, who is this? <laughs> but um, so I had to, you know, it's interesting stepping into a thing that's already existing and working rather than like starting something from right. scratch. I think that there was a, you know, and for me, I don't like to show up to a place like new territory and be like, okay, here's how it is. I'm mm-hmm. going to, you know, and so I think it took me a little bit to absorb sort of the values and culture that w- were there already and then kind of uh, bring my own perspective to it. I think probably about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were th- certain things that I just like I needed to learn, like um, whole animal butchery, for example. Mm-hmm. I had very little experience with anything bigger than a rabbit. And, um, you know, so I had to do like learn about breaking down hogs and lambs and, you know, all that and use a bone saw. And, um, (laughs) you know, I think um, and then just sort of all of the kitchen dynamics, you know, stepping into a place, it's easy to be kind of honestly, it was a little intimidating for me at first, like. I kind of inherited my sous chef, you know, and like the other cooks who were there and building rapport with them, you know, that was just, and and not like being okay with admitting that I didn't know about something or, Mm -hmm. you know, but still also being in leadership. Like that was a a fine line with that. It was. Yeah. And so I had, I had to learn a lot about that. Um, but it was a really overall, it was a good experience and, um, and it was interesting too. I mean, I was, like get, I got to know all of the purveyors and they were a little bit confused about who was leading, leading the kitchen at first. And, um, it's easy to take those things personally, but I had to kind of learn that you just, you just can't, you just have to keep your head down, work hard, um, keep pushing forward to, to better and not really worry. If you let that stuff get to you, then you're not going to do a good job. I'm really excited to hear about your experience in Cochon 555. Am I pronouncing that yeah. remotely correct? Okay. Cochon 555. It's French. I, I would love to hear, how do you get entered into this competition? It's a national competition yeah. that's focused around heritage breed hogs uh, and is like a big event that they host that you literally go and taste and you know wine. There's, I, I want to hear about like how did you get involved with Cushon and what that whole experience like and I won't lay the spoiler down to the end here <laughs> for suspense purposes and entertainment <laughs> value but what was that like how did you get involved with that competition and what was that whole experience like yeah you know well I don't know exactly how I got involved I'm guessing someone put forth my name or I, I'm not sure but I remember um chef thomas bamer approached me and he was like so there's this thing he sat me down he's like there's this thing um how how about uh competing in the Kashan 555 competition and he's like i'm asking you a question but it's not really a question <laughs> like okay um i i was terrified or not terrified but i was like why in the first place like i'm not really it, there's such a kind of machismo around that competition and I'm like I am this tiny chef who isn't like whole animal butchery and it or like barbecue meats like that stuff isn't really my ethos or yeah. my you know that's not my like primary you know that's not really what gets me going necessarily and even though I'm I believe strongly in, in doing whole animal butchery and like all of that, but it just wasn't, wasn't really my identity at the time as a chef and, or even something that I felt like I had a ton of experience with. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, 
you know, this is another, <laughs> but I've already, I've already had a few things in my life where it's felt like a really big challenge that I need to step up to. And, and this is another one. And so I thought like, okay, I'll do it. But I was kind of dreading it, honestly. Mm. And, um, but something I learned actually from my mom, like years ago when I was a kiddo, um, was just, if there's anything intimidating, like at the time cleaning my room, um, you just break it down into steps, doable steps. And same same thing with something like any of these challenges or like this competition, for example. Figure out what you don't know or figure out what you need to do. Break mm. it down into steps and then it becomes achievable. Yeah. And, I, I always put it that's like if someone's done it before, yes. there is a way to do it. I might not know how to do it now, but I bet I could learn one part of it. Yes. And then if I learn that one part, I'm sure I could learn the next little part. Exactly. And then if someone's done it, in theory, I should be able to do it too. Exactly. <laughs> yes. How much uh, prep time did you have leading up to the the competition? You know, I don't really remember, but I do remember, boy, a week to two or uh, a month to a couple of weeks before the competition. It was like insane. I I was, you know, running the restaurant. We were doing our normal service. And then I would like stay after service and come super early and like be prepping for this competition. I, I can't remember when we got the hog in, how long before. It was like 14 days before the competition, I think. Um, but I was like so exhausted and so stressed that I um, like my eye swelled up one day. It was like a got a sty in my eye and my sous chef had to like drive me around. It was ridiculous. <laughs> like it was it was really ridiculous. I was as it was as much as I've ever pushed myself, mm-hmm. I think. And um and we were just a tiny team. You know, it was me and like I don't three, four other cooks tops and we were also like that was just enough to just pull off like normal service plus this other huge event. And um but that also kind of made it more fun. So I literally, like, my mom came in one day and, like, <laughs> helped me roll a bunch of Swedish meatballs. And, like, someone, like, a couple other friends came in and helped me, like, make 60 pies over the course of... And I do all of the crust by hand. Like, no yeah, food processors You brought in a pie anything. today and that crust looks yeah. absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but so it's, like, all of that stuff. It was really sweet. It, it I felt like there was a small army of people who you know, wanted to, to help out and, and, and make it happen. Um, and so by the time that I was at the competition, like, um, me and my, my two, um, my little crew, they were like, well, we, we really believe in what we're doing and what we've done. And we want to give people a good experience. We're going to give it our best shot. But at this point, like, we feel like we're already putting something out there that we're proud of. Mm -hmm. And that was more important than like winning the competition at that point. Like we were just proud of ourselves for pulling off all of that, (laughs) (laughs) regardless of how it was received. Um, And so that was, that was pretty cool. How how did you approach what you would be serving at the competition? Because so my understanding of is it's like head to toe butchery Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the focus of it. But outside of that, how much flexibility or how are you approaching what to serve out Outside of the fact that it does involve this, you know, pork. Yeah, I mean that was that was a really good like exercise for me to think through what to put forth to people. And Thomas was a good um, sounding board for that. He because he had been involved in the competition before. Um, he had to. He really gave me um, carte blanche. Like he didn't want to be too involved in it, mm-hmm. but he did help me think through, um, he was my sounding board for thinking through menu and he just kind of encouraged me to use my voice and use my story. So that's why I kind of went back to, um, sort of like 
very like grandma food, you know, like Swedish Minnesotan stuff and, and things that had some significance to me, mm. even though that there, there are other dishes that have significance or I could have done some like Vietnamese food or things like that, mm. you know, that are meaningful to me. But I think that is that the food that I chose to do for that was more of a specific story about me and my, you know, why stuff that kind of runs deep um, uh, in how, what, why I do what I do, you know, like those connections mm-hmm. to hospitality and family. And so um, that was really, and, and then I tried to do, you know, utilize different, as many different parts of the animals that I could. Um, like I even did liver ice cream to go with the pie. Um, <laughs> sounds disgusting. I was going to say my first choice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring you any today. Sorry about that. Mm. Um uh, but I, it's kind of like, um, I mean, think about like foie gras. I mean, it's yeah. a similar thing and you want that with something sweet. It actually worked really well, but it was just, you know, that was a way to utilize another part of the pork. Um, use the blood. I did blood pudding. Um, and you know, so I really, we, we tried to use as much as possible. Um, and that's part of the competition too. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you won? Because so first female winner ever, and and especially in a competition like this, like you already referenced, that mm-hmm. is like a very masculine reputation. That like whole hog butchery, you, yeah. you just like get this imagery in your head of you know this this low and slow and backyard cook and all this stuff. And so to come in, like you said, like kind of dreading it to all of a <laughs> yeah. sudden winning it. What yeah. what was that like to go from not even knowing if you should be doing it to winning right. it as the first female yeah. ever winner? It was, um, I mean, it was pretty wild. I mean, I, I really didn't, you know, I, I was competing against other chefs that I respected and some of some of whom I had even worked with and or for. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that at the end of the day, I, I really think that um, people resonated with the story that the food told and the heart behind it. And I think they really saw that with, with um, what, my team did and um but it was really i want to say it was humbling i'm trying not to say that <laughs> but, um, <laughs> i would call you out <laughs> i know but um it was it was really kind of amazing and i i was so thrilled for all of the people who had helped me out and just literally come out of the woodwork and like stopped by to bring me a coffee mm-hmm. or like <laughs> yeah because you know the, the vibe i'm getting is and this is how i feel about awards is like personally i don't really care that much yeah but like external validation for work you've done is rewarding it more, is. More, so it's less of the award aspect and it's more of like the reward that you go yes the people around me are working really hard we're all really focused on what we're doing so to get validation yes. for that and then also it, it, in like the business sense the entrepreneurial sense it does build your credibility it does and credibility is a very very difficult thing to come by uh and yeah. so to be able to take home an award like that is is another way that it's just like validation for how you're approaching thing the intentionality yeah. you're putting into it yeah um versus you know other awards that get like really political it's like no this is just like a, a true validation of what we've been working really hard towards yeah so now you have muriel this is where we'll kind of f- mm-hmm. finish up the episode here uh, how does the inception of Muriel begin? Well, um, uh, before Corner Table closed, um, I'd been thinking about talking with the owners about <clears throat> doing some renovations there and kind of re- doing a new iteration of the restaurant. Long story short, that that didn't happen. And now I'm, I'm thankful for the timing of that. Just, you know, with COVID and everything, yeah. that would have been really rough. Um, but 
it kind of got me into thinking about opening a restaurant. And I had been thinking that way for a little bit. And um, probably after after I won the Grand Cachon, the national competition. And um, I had started to think that way and already kind of have an ownership mentality. And, um, you know, so I, um, you know, I looked at when, when the corner table thing didn't happen, um, I started to look at some other spaces and then, you know, the pandemic hit and there was a lot of like question asking and, you know, soul searching and all of that. But, and I was about to throw in the towel and maybe look way outside of the cities. Um, but then this spot popped up and, um, then the name is, uh, something that I think, um, so Muriel's a name of a character from the book, Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's the bishop at the beginning who is just this really cool guy who's given away most of his wealth to the poor and, um, welcomes in an ex-convict into his home when he's about to sit down and have supper. And this guy, like, it ends up that starts a chain of events that really changes this man's life. And to me, when I first read that, um, when I was kind of just starting in the, the food scene, um, that picture of hospitality and that kind of meeting someone where they're at, um, that picture of grace, it really like captured me. And I thought, man, I would love to, you know, like that kind of became an inspiration for me. And so, you know, now my first restaurant, um, you know, I, I wanted to kind of have a reminder in front of me all the time about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's also a cool name, I think. It's a, I'm partial, it's a great but. name. It's a great story, too. <laughs> um, and I just think that it makes it, it's easy, you know, you want to bring a staff around a, a, you know, common value, a vision of hospitality. It's not just about the food for me. It's about the hospitality. It's about being a conduit, um, you know, between food and, and humans and people connecting and having meaningful experiences and building community and all of that. And so... Um, I just am excited to have that as a kind of guiding talking point, you know, for me and, and my staff as we try to open out a restaurant. And a big part of how the word about Muriel has gotten out is Karin's Quarantine Kitchen, <laughs> yeah. which uh, I would love to hear how you decided to start doing that. And it's obviously gained a lot of traction. And I mean, people are talking about it and I've seen write-ups about it. What was the first moment where you decided to begin Karin's Quarantine Kitchen, which is your video series uh, on cooking? Yeah, you know, I think, I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember um, having kind of a bum week at the beginning of, like right at the beginning of quarantine, thinking like, what is happening? What am I doing? You know, another restaurant has fallen through and I am like, what am I doing with my life? What's happening with the world? And I just thought, you know, I got to keep moving. I've got to keep doing something, but I don't know what that can be. Um, so actually circle back to way at the beginning of my career, when I got back from cooking school, I had started, or maybe before then, I think I did a little bit before and right after, um, I had started, not many people know about this, but I had started a cooking blog. Um, I'm one of the dreaded bloggers, um, but I... Don't worry, I have a podcast. <laughs> I'm safe then, okay. Yeah. Um, it was, and it was called Karn's Kitchen, and I actually did a couple of cooking videos way back in the day, um, which are somewhere on, maybe on the internet somewhere. <laughs> on the but, dark web. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, uh, 
um, you know, and I've always enjoyed, like, I like teaching. I like talking to people. I'm not afraid of doing that. And I um, enjoy that. And so anyway, um, I think a friend of mine even said, well, why don't you bring back Karn's Kitchen? And I kind of laughed at it. And I was like, oh, wait, maybe, you know, everyone has to, all of a sudden there are all these people who have to cook at home way more than ever. And, you know, maybe that's a way that I can serve the community is by giving some inspiration, some tips, or at least entertainment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And um, so I brought Karin's Kitchen, but made a Karin's Quarantine Kitchen. And I also um, had my my friend Erin Ungerman from New France Wine Company had just started doing some wine videos. And like, she is also like battling this thing out. Like, we are not going to let hospitality and food die. And so we chatted on the phone and I was like, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing. And we said, well, why don't we collaborate? You know, <laughs> we can kind of bring food and wine pairings, like dining experiences to people. Um, and by, you know, I'll, I'll give them a recipe that they can cook. And then Aaron will tell them about a wine that goes really good with it and where you can buy it. And so that's kind of how that was born. And I should note, this is happening in March. So uh, March yeah. 16th is a date I won't forget. That's the announcement of that this is all going down. Yeah. And so you talk about it now. I'm sure people are like, yeah, that's literally what almost everybody's trying to do. Right. But you're doing this 10 12 days after the first closure. And yeah. so this is before anybody's doing it. And that's probably a big part, I think, of why it stuck out so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't know about uh, Karin's Kitchen way back in the day in the block. <laughs> no one does. That's fine. <laughs> and so it's interesting that you had that already kind of yeah. in the back of your head ready to go. And it's part of the, probably part of the reason you were able to move so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has now morphed into weekly takeout yeah. at Muriel. What, mm-hmm. what has the reception been like for that? And how do you approach a takeout menu versus cooking for someone in person where they're going to be enjoying it as a full experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, well, it's been received well. I'm really thankful for it. I mean, the Highland Park neighborhood has been awesome. I've been getting to know people who live around there and, um, there have been a lot of people who are eager to support a, a small business and, um, I've, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of glad that I can piggyback off of the Carnes Quarantine Kitchen brand per se, because it's more, I mean, the idea there was always like home meals, stuff that you can do in a home, stuff that's a little bit more rustic, um, no tweezers involved. Like, you know, it's just, it's a little, it's, um, I mean, it's good food and it's made with good ingredients, but like, you know, nothing, not like crazy. And so, um, Anyway, it's been great because that's also the kind of food that does better in takeout. You know, meats that are cooked over a long amount of time reheat better. Mm -hmm. You know, if you ever try to reheat a steak that's beautifully done right when it's cooked, it tastes like refrigerator. Like it's just not, it doesn't work well for that. And so, or something that's like beautiful on a plate, if, you know, it comes out hot, just isn't going to look so hot anymore once it's in a, you know, to-go container. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I've been trying to do things that are family friendly, that are, you know, will reheat well and not lose their integrity and, um, you know, trying to strike a balance. Like I'll do some things that are very like, oh, and I've been doing the um, dinner roll sandwiches mm-hmm. every week and then a meal for four. And I think that the dinner roll sandwiches, that's something that's like, it's easy. You can throw it in the freezer and it's also um, very like comforting. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an element 
um, of 2020 that just begs for a bit of comforting. <laughs> <laughs> and then the meals before I try to mix it up just because it's been so monotonous, like days bleed into the next, you know, mm. it's just like hard to mark the passage of time. And so like having someone else come up with a different meal for you every week is sort of, I think, important too. And how will you approach the menu at Muriel when you're able to open? Yeah. Um, so Muriel, 45 seater, it's going to be a very intimate space. Yes. Yeah. How does how, how do you go about your menu and how do you kind of, uh, with your background, what, what's your approach for Muriel? Yeah, you know, I'm even now I'm still kind of holding to that a little bit loosely just because we've gone through so much change collectively this past year. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I, you know, I'm still just getting to know the neighborhood. Um, but I do know, like, I want to be able to do some sort of a tasting menu because I love that. I love being able to go out and have someone else make decisions for me and basically tell me a story through food or something. Mm-hmm. And But that's not for all the time. And it's a it's a neighborhood restaurant. It's right between a couple colleges. And, um, you know, I, so I, I will want to have some a la carte um, options available. But it's not going to be a huge menu. It's a small space. It'll mm-hmm. be a small staff. Um, I want to be really excited about what is on there and as much as possible like I want to also tell a story about you know where where we live and use use as many um, local ingredients and work with um, small farmers and some of um, my personal connections to showcase their product um, on the table and I think that I want to you know even though it's a French name um, from a French book it's not going to be like a Parisian like um, it, the food won't be precious. Mm. It's not going to be like um, a Parisian bistro mm. per se, but I think I'll use cooking techniques that are more European, but I just, um, I'll try to communicate as, you know, uh, as efficiently as possible in the food. So it's not going to have tons of things on a plate necessarily, but it'll have just what it needs. Hopefully that's the goal. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um as the holidays, I see you're doing Christmas meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the weekly takeout. Is there anything else you want to plug or anything that anybody should be keeping Ooh. an eye out for? Karen's uh, Quarantine Kitchen on on your Instagram, yes. which I'll I'll plug at the uh, in the show notes here. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, and I'm actually I'm going to be doing a little cooking video today that'll be popping up this week. Um, but uh, I'm, yeah, I'm doing Christmas dinner um, or whatever holiday people are choosing to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it'll be, um, we're doing takeout, uh, the pickup for that on the 23rd. And I'm just doing um, a bunch of sides. I'm doing a few protein options. Like I'm getting these Wild Acres ducks from um, from Pat. Uh, and he he raises just these beautiful ducks. I'll make those. I'll prepare them and do a chestnut stuffing, but people can roast them on their own and I'll do instructions on that. Maybe even a video. And, um, then I'm also doing a bunch of Swedish meatballs and potato sausage because that's what I'll be missing this year. That's what my family would normally do. And, um, so I'll be doing that. And then even some things for the next morning, um, like a coffee cake and an egg bake and, just, you know, I think the fun of holiday eating is having a lot of different options. But when everyone is in such small pods mm. right now, it's kind of a lot to prepare all of that just for like four people, two people, you know, yeah. one. <laughs> and so anyway, I think um, I want to make uh, as much kind of familiarity and normalcy um, more 
uh, easier for people. So that's coming up. And then I'll be doing something fun for New Year's Eve. Um, that's TBD, exactly what the menu will be. But um, And then with Christmas, I'm also going to be offering three different wine pairings nice. with my friend Aaron. Um, I'll have the info on that later today, but they'll be really, her pairings have been just so awesome and it's just really, I love the intentionality behind it and it's stuff that's not like easy to find either. Um, so those things will be coming up. Um, yeah, it's ever changing. We're going to have some more things coming up in January. Maybe we'll try to do some fun dinners. I don't know who knows what we'll be able to do or not do next month, but you know, it's it's almost one of the positives of starting during a pandemic is yeah. this is your normal. Whereas most yeah. places are kind of you have to hold on and just say we need to adjust every week and just yes. try to hold on until we can open again. You're like, no, this is our thing, yeah. and then it'll be awesome when we can find our new normal once things are open right. back up. Well, it's kind of like invaluable market research without you know. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you can literally like, test items, send them out, and get perfect. direct feedback as people are picking yeah. up. And um, I'm, I'm obviously really excited for Muriel to open. I, like, thank you so much for coming in today. It's such an awesome story, and uh, some parts of it that I'm like. You can't make that up. Well, like, or maybe you can. Maybe it's too easy to make up that it's crazy that it happened to you. But thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, and I look really, I look forward to having most of that apple pie and maybe sharing some <laughs> of it with the team. Uh, I'll end it like I end every other episode and say, have a nice day. <laughs>